I stumbled into something in Luke chapter 2. I'm not going to tell you what it was. But I stumbled into something that made me go, I think I might not be understanding the Christmas story right. So uh, my family's probably had to deal with me just being a little extra irritated because I'm trying to fix things and unpack and find time to pull books off my shelf and figure out, do I really understand this one right? Because I dare not try to speak for God when I don't understand it right. A couple of cautions, and this is, I'm going to get into how do we look at God's Word, and if God gives us a long time together, you're probably going to hear me repeat these themes over and over again. When we get into God's Word, particularly for those of us that maybe grew up going to church, we start to feel really comfortable with it. We start to think we really know these things. And then there's 66 books. And it's thousands of years of history, and the cultures are very different, and you've got all of these distinct portions of history and different biblical literatures. And frankly, I forget a lot of stuff. Even that I've read it over and over, and I think I've memorized it, I forget stuff. And I have to go back and relearn. And then one of the memory tricks that I have that isn't necessarily good is sometimes I look at Bible stories, and I try to memorize them in ways in which I fully understand them. And the text doesn't really change me. I'm trying to mold the story into what makes me feel comfortable. And I've had a week where I've had to kind of, oh, wrestle with this one. And my poor family at times has seen me extra growly because I'm trying to get them to be quiet so I can think through something. But yet, the whole nature of Christmas is celebration. Here's two big truths I want us to remember about this Christmas story. First off, God dwells in our midst. Human flesh is entrusted in God. He's here in our midst. He's like us. And as he enters into our life, the parts of humanity that most represent him are messy and humbling. I appreciate Justin's communion thought. And I was looking at it. I grew up in a home where we did have a septic system. We weren't in city, didn't have city water. Justin's telling this story, and I was thinking, I remember my dad and I doing something similar, and I was thinking, but we did it in the spring of the year, and I could just see how irritated my dad would have been doing if we had been doing it at 15 below. I'm thankful I've never done that. I may want to live in cities the rest of my life because I'd be afraid of having to But that's a great illustration. And for those of you that don't understand septic systems, talk to Justin and I a little bit more. I think there's a half dozen of us that could explain it in gruesome detail of what was going on. <laughs> but honestly, we've got to understand the gruesome detail to fully understand the gospel. I'm going to read, break it down. I'm going to take on several sections. Raphael gave me more time than I've had the last few Sundays, so I'm going to try to use it all well. I'm going to read a couple of sections, make some comments, try to tell the story well, and I hope you'll get this feel for God entering the human flesh and our humanity in the midst of it. And when life really is like trying to fix a septic system in 15 below winters, this is where God's at. I read from Holman's chapter 2, verse 1 of Luke. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Tiberius was governing Syria, so everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judah, Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of David, the family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in a cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. The story is told that a census is called. And Luke gives us some details about it. If you start reading through New Testament history and commentaries, and those who go and look, okay, let's figure out what was going on in a little bit more details by looking at Roman history. The event that Luke mentions, we can't find it in secular Roman literature. It's not there. You kind of have to wrestle with it. Some would say, well, is Luke true? And I'm going to believe he's true. I'm going to believe that sometimes, you know, in, in big pictures, when things are just recorded on scrolls, information gets lost. And my assumption is that what has happened is the Roman Empire is in some ways a ruthless, cruel, but efficient empire. And the emperor wanted there to be a good count. And he probably sent out a message, I want to know how many people are in the empire, and then local officials have to do it, and this is a point <coughs> where the local governor is going to execute it. Everyone has to go back to their hometown, the place where their family heritage started. Joseph takes his pregnant wife Mary, and he travels from Nazareth and Galilee, which is a, a northern province, 67 miles away from Bethlehem, which is his hometown, or where his family originates. He travels down there, and he goes from Galilee, which is a rural backwater, down to Judea, which is much more influential. And Bethlehem is the hometown of King David, and it says that Joseph is from these lineage. While they are there, Mary gives birth to her firstborn son, who we will call Jesus. At this point, we'd say Jesus of Bethlehem, later Jesus of Nazareth. And when we understand who he is, we'll say he's Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, the King of all kings. The text clearly says that after he is born, this little baby is placed in a feeding trough. Now, if we go up, grow up going to church, we might use the term manger. We try to find a more religious, less offensive way to say where he's placed. But he's placed in a feeding trough. There is no room for Joseph and Mary in Jesus where people are normally sleeping. The older translations, if you read through them, if you do one of those things where you say, okay, I'm going to look at every Bible that is in my house or every Bible translation that I can find on BibleGateway.com, the oldest English translations will say there's no room in the end. The newer ones, which might actually be more accurate, will say there was no room for them in the lodging place, the guest room, the living quarters. <coughs> Let me flesh this out and maybe even tell you why I think it's important for us to see some of this. There's some details that aren't here, but trying to get a feel of what's happening. I think that one of the things that's happening is how does this empire function? The leaders of it, when they get assigned to be local, they're fickle. 
You don't quite know what they're going to do from one moment to the next. They've got a big picture agenda the emperor's told them, and they don't want to get the emperor mad. But even if you watch the Herods in the Gospels or in Acts, these are fickle governors that are immoral by nature. The emperor's governance was rigid and cruel. And I trust Luke was telling the truth here. And wouldn't it have been convenient for Joseph just to have ran down 67 miles if it was just him? A man could cover 67 miles fairly quickly, even on foot. It's only a couple of days. And to have left his pregnant wife back home. But there was something that had been imposed upon the people where they had to travel with a pregnant woman 67 miles. I wrestled a little bit with what did it look like when she gave birth? What was going on there? It appears to me Joseph and Mary were some of the poorest of the poor. We're going to see it in just a few moments as we look at a little bit about what happens on the time of 40 days after his birth. But 40 days after the birth of Jesus, the Jewish law, the Old Testament law said you have to take the child, a male child to the temple to be dedicated and there has to be a sacrifice. And the sacrifices were spelled, spelled out in Leviticus 12 and generally it was the firstborn son you will give a sacrifice of a lamb. But if you're poor, if you don't have the resources to buy a lamb, you come with two pigeons or two doves and that's what they come with. Based on what they're giving, this is a poor family. I mentioned that the translation, some will say they stayed in an inn, and some will say they stayed in the lodging place, the place, the guest room, or, or there, there was no room in the inn, or there was no room in the guest house. If they stayed in an inn, that tells me something about their family structure. Joseph was a descendant of the kings, and I think it's fair to assume that when he went to Bethlehem, he had cousins, and it was an extended family-based culture. And somebody should have felt obligated to say, hey, don't go stay in a hotel. We've got an extra room. Your wife's pregnant. Stay with us, and we'll give you our best room for you and your wife. Typically, when an extended family is functioning well, you make a little bit extra space if your cousin's pregnant wife is about ready to give birth. If he had to go to an inn and there was no room in the inn, their family's dysfunctional. If they're staying in a home, if they found a couple of cousins who said, yeah, stay with us, but nobody's going to give them a bed, and they get pushed down to the lower floor where the animals stay while well, you still got a roof over your head. That says a lot about how their, their family structure functions. It's either they would push them out and say, go to the inn, and the inn has no room, or they say, okay, stay with us. And the typical structures were two-story, and on the top was where the people stayed, and on the bottom was where the animals, and they pushed them down to the animals. This was a poor family whose extended family probably wasn't doing It's dangerous to sometimes put yourself into the stories, and I would guess in a place like North Dakota and with an African missionary, there's a few of us that have had a couple of times in life 
where for some reason you had to sleep with the animals. I've done it a couple of times. Frankly, I don't like doing it. I don't like the smell of cattle. I don't like mosquitoes. I don't like flies. And in some places where I've had to do it, and I've only had to do it a couple of times, the feeding trough has a little bit of grain, and at night rats come out and start mingling through the feeding trough. The earthy nature of it, what Justin talked about, that's where the king of all kings spends his first night. Why does it matter? I'm going to close, not now, but in a few minutes, and I'm going to be in Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 4, verse 16, has a long section talking about who is Jesus. And one of the themes that's going to be is that Jesus came as the Son of God, our great high priest, but he lived as a man, and he's been through everything that we have been through. And he's a perfect example for faith and a sacrifice for our sins. In our humanity, there will be times when we feel like we have absolutely no control. There will be times when we feel like we are cruelly manipulated by others. There's going to be times when we can barely pay our bills. Maybe we even can't. Maybe we're constantly falling behind and we're poor. And when we go through those seasons, Jesus understands exactly what our experience was like. Because that's exactly where he was born. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 20, has the story of shepherds and angels. And let me read that. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields, keeping watch all night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today a Savior who is the Messiah of the Lord was born to you in the city of David. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth, lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multiple of heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heavens and peace on earth to the people he favors. When the angels had left them, they returned to heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, what the Lord has made known to us. Then they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph, and the baby was lying in the feeding trough. And after seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring of all these things in her heart and med meditating on them. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they had been told. If you go to church on Christmas, you're familiar with this. I'm reading through this, and you've read this and heard this hundreds, maybe thousands of times. A few things that I want to just draw our attention to, you're familiar with this. Shepherds in the Bible are both a humble and an honored profession. You don't go to school to be trained to be a shepherd. If you become one, it's really not like you got promoted to it. But it's an honorable profession. There's honorable shepherds from the beginning of all time, the patriarchs of Abel to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. They're shepherds and they're honored. King David, who's seen as the ideal king, he starts out as a shepherd. 
And he learns compassion and courage as a shepherd. There's different prophets who are shepherds. One that jumps to my mind quickly is the prophet Amos. In Ezekiel, when he writes a letter indicting Israel's leaders, he uses the illustration of shepherds saying, you have not shepherded these people well. Shepherds in the Bible are both humble and honored. And I think by God sending his angels to go to the shepherds is going back to the oldest of their understandings of who should hear this first, what professions. The shepherds are the first to hear, and it's consistent with Judah's history of faith, and a little bit about their context. They are not out in a shelter. They're not in the structure underneath where the people are sleeping. They're out in an open field. They're probably alternating. Some of them are sleeping on the ground while others are up watching the animals. They may have cut down a bunch of thorny brushes and laid, made a, I want to use in African terms, a crawl. They've developed a, a protection around the sheep. And somebody sleeps and somebody watches and they're looking for predators and thieves. These are earthy, hardy men. Then a single angel stands among them, full of light and glory. And the shepherd's response is fear. The first emotion to come to them is to be afraid. Now, I always think it's interesting, what are the first emotions someone feels? And these are strong, hardy men. My guess is if a wolf was noticed, they'd probably get everybody up quick, gather up a bow, a spear, and they'd go and attack. And most of them would probably have a surge of adrenaline when that's happening, and there's enough of them, and they're confident enough in their skills and their strength that they take it on. They see an angel, and their first response is fear. They have seen something that shakes all of their beings, that thinks this is what we can depend on. It shakes it to the deepest part of their being, and they're afraid. And these are men who would be noted for their courage. They're aware of where they stand. The angel's message to them is, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of joy. And this joy just isn't for you. This is for all people. For a Savior is born. This child is going to enter into the world. He's going to save his people from sin, from oppression. He's a Messiah. He's anointed one. He's one the prophets have spoken of. And he's the Lord. He's born in Bethlehem. And he gives them a sign. Go and see it, and you're going to find an infant laying in a feeding trough. Yeah, that's out of the ordinary. Shortly after they hear that, suddenly a multitude of angels appears praising God and they're proclaiming peace on earth to all the people that God favors. The angels leave and the shepherds investigate what they have been told, what has been made known to them. And one of the things I want us to go, okay, okay, what are my responses as I read this text and I want to see how I should respond to the king of all kings coming. And I want to respond to when things don't quite make sense or when I think that God is whispering something to me. The shepherds go and they have a healthy curiosity. They're wondering, what will we find? They quickly go into Bethlehem and they find it's just as the angels have told them. There is this child. His father is a descendant of kings. 
and the child is laying in the feeding trough. And they start reporting that message to everyone they know, and everyone who hears it is amazed. Mary, the mother of Jesus, treasures these things to happen. And I don't think she's fully grasped what's coming. In fact, she won't fully grasp it until Jesus rises from the dead. But she continues to meditate and ponder all these so out of these ordinary experiences from such a position of humility. Now, I uh, intended to stop here and I got a little bit more time. And the kids did such a good job of telling this story that I thought, you know what, I need to give you just a little bit more. Let you hear some of the other voices that interact with Jesus. And take a look at what is it like for the first month of this child's life, the King of Kings. And for those of us that have had babies in our home, you know, the, the first day after birth, the first 24 hours, always emotional, always a bit traumatic. You're always going to remember a few key things, but it's also just kind of an absolute blur of what happened. And then it's these moments that come shortly after in the next few days to months where you kind of start to process, who is this child? How's this child going to interact with our community? How's he going to interact with his grandparents and his aunts and uncles and church and all of those around? Luke chapters 2, verse 21 says, When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or young pigeons. Eight days after the birth, Jesus is circumcised and he's given a name, and the name is Jesus, the name he saves. Forty days later, Mary and Joseph and Jesus will travel from Bethlehem about six miles to Jerusalem for him to be presented at the temple, a sacrifice will be made, and I mentioned this before, the sacrifices of two pigeons or two doves, which indicates this is a poor family. They're a long ways, they're 67, 76 miles from home, living with an extended family probably that doesn't really want them, and 40 days later, they're heading to Jerusalem. When they get there, they interact with two people who continue this testimony. Who is this Jesus? Verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple complex when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform him what was customary in the law. Simeon took him up in his arms and praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and he told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel 
and to be a sign that will be opposed. A sword will pierce your own soul and the thoughts of many hearts. Simeon is described as righteous and devout. There's no title given to him, though, of like a priest or a prophet. There's no powerful title. It seems to me that the thing that Simeon has is his righteousness and his devotion has produced hope. And that is the greatest thing that he has. The Holy Spirit has spoken to him and says that he will see the Messiah before he dies. And guided by the Spirit, Simeon enters into the temple complex at the same time that Joseph and Mary are coming in to dedicate Jesus. When he sees Jesus, he takes him into his arms. And this is one of these moments that to me is pretty tender if you can imagine this. You're a poor man and woman, six miles outside of town, staying with extended family, trying to navigate an empire, and you come in and you're going to dedicate this child, and you're thinking, who are we? And this old man, who's righteous and devout, but filled with hope, comes and takes your child and has him in his arms. How do you know that we were coming? And he speaks and he says, this time is now. And Simeon is one of these old gentlemen, and my guess is his body is in decline, but his mind and spirit is still sharp. And he's ready to pass on from this earth. He's in some ways feeling a bit like, why can't I go? He says, I can be dismissed. Life has been good. And he recognizes his most important relationships. The Lord, the God of heaven, is his master. And Simeon refers to himself as a slave. His righteousness and devotion has produced humility and produced clear eyes. The promise of God has been kept. He is faithful. He's seen it. God is in flesh and he is real. And Simeon speaks of the big picture of where this is going. This child is going to bless all people. He's going to provide a revelation to the Gentiles for all people groups, all people out there from whatever languages or ethnicities or nations around the world he's speaking, Simeon is, for generations of Christian history. Joseph and Mary are amazed at what he said. And I think their humility would make them extra eager to hear. Simeon seems to me he would set Jesus back into Mary's arms and put his hands on Joseph and Mary and speak to them and bless them. But as he speaks to them, if I was standing there, I wouldn't be too happy with this message. I'd want Simeon to tell me that my son is going to be a successful ruler, that he's going to do well at everything in life, and everyone's going to love him, and he's going to lead with great popularity. Instead, Simeon says, this child is destined to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. He's going to be opposed. He will not be popular. He says to Mary, I'm sure I get this right, a sword of peace to your own soul. The thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. 
path of Mary is that she's going to see her child suffering. And the suffering will reveal the truth in many people's hearts. That would be a tough one to take in. The next testimony that we hear is Anna. And I'll read this. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years. Having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years, she did not leave the temple complex, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel, or the redemption of Jerusalem. Also, at this very moment, Anna comes up. These humble, godly old people. And though Simeon has a long passage that Luke gives us, he's never given a title. He's just said he's devout. Anna's given a title. She's a prophetess. It says that her life is she's was married seven years and then has been a widow for 84. And if you do the math, she's really I get 91 years thinking, how old was she when she got married? We're looking into hundreds. The fact that she's standing square, and her mind is still sharp, and her spirit knows when God is speaking. She never leaves that temple complex. She serves God with fasting and prayer, and she comes up and thanks God. And she says, he is the one spoke about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem and the crowds gathered around. Now, in a couple of days, Tuesday, we're going to be here. We're going to have our candlelight service. If you want to know what I'm going to preach on, I'm going to try to be tight and short. We're going to be in John chapter 1 talking about light comes into the world. Today, the Christmas story conclusion Jesus represents all of our human struggles. He represents and completes all the ideals of Judas, shepherds, kings, and leaders. And in Luke, we see the classic messengers that have spoken for God. In chapter 2, all come out. It's prophets, it's shepherds, it's angels, it's righteous and devout, and it's women. All the messengers that you should pay attention to speak for him. And they proclaim four things that I see. Salvation is coming. There will be peace with God in men. There is a completion coming to all of history. But yet, though, peace is part of it. Conflict is coming. I'm going to close with one scripture. And this is to me why it's so important that we understand that when Jesus entered into this world, he came in such humble circumstances, such messy circumstances. Because Christmas, even if we're just completely honest with one another, even my Christmas, three of my kids are with me, two of them aren't. One granddaughter is not. Well, I think we're going to have a good Christmas, but it's not complete. And the older and longer we go on, in some ways it's both easier to celebrate Christmas and more painful every time. 
And with that, we have to understand who is this Jesus. He's the one who is the Son of God, the King of all kings, who enters into our lives when life is missing. Stand with me as I read. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Let's go with God.